This is Fortune's Wheel, the podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. My, how things can change over just a matter of decades. Today, we look at the other Iberia, that is, the Iberia that's largely been shoved into the wings of the Iberian Middle Ages so far. But all that is about to change. For those wondering where episode 60 is, that one is for anchor-supporting listeners and Patreon supporters only. So if you're looking for more great medieval content, I encourage you to check out our supporting listener plans on Anchor and Patreon. The links are in the show notes. Also, please remember that Patreon members have both the Anchor bonuses as well as Patreon-only episodes, both released each month. Our current series on Patreon covers the first stirrings of modern-day Poland, and its events hardly occur in a vacuum. Poland's history is intimately intertwined with Europe's 11th century history, so if you're looking for more context, then please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Today's episode, episode 61, is entitled, The Tables Have Turned. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Of all the taifas in Al-Andalus approaching the middle of the 11th century, by far the most influential and wealthiest was Seville. It didn't immediately seem that way, but over the ensuing couple decades, kicked off by the fall of the caliphate, Seville's leader, Abu al-Qasim, had pulled out all the stops to ensure Seville's prosperity and see to its rise to preeminence among the taifa kingdoms after the fall of the Cordoban caliphate. Oh, wait, did I say ensure Seville's prosperity? <laughs> yeah, sorry, typo. Um, centralized power rarely cares about the community. So either way, when I say he pulled out all the stops, on that regard, I do mean it. Brian Catlos in his book, Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain, explained one peculiar instance when Abu al-Qasim had some fun, enjoyed some... Hmm, chicanery, partook in a bit of light-hearted ballyhoo, if you will. Basically, Al-Qasim went basic. Catlos writes, quote, Here, ten years after taking power in 1023, Abu Al-Qasim would brazenly announce that he had found Hisham II alive, and that the caliph had appointed him, Hajib, with authority over all of and- Al-Andalus. On special occasions, the imposter would be paraded out in ceremonial robes to reinforce Abu al-Qasim's authority. End quote. So yeah, uh, remember Hisham II? He was the rightful caliph who was cooped up in luxurious enslavement by Almanzor all those years, and then by his son. Well, he was rumored to have died, and he was rumored to also have escaped and was still trying to muster the support to reunify Al-Andalus under Umayyad control. Let's face, no one had a clue at the time. During the 1030s and 1040s, while Canute's succession crisis threw England and Denmark into disarray, and even young Duke William of Normandy was jumping out of windows under a sky of stars to escape assassination attempts, this apparent lie in Iberia was played out fully and Al-Qasim continued to stay in power and push his taifa of Seville 
to greater and greater reaches of influence. Al-Andalus was certainly in a bad place during those years, but it wasn't all for naught. The nobility in Cordoba, as Catlos explained, quote, repaired its infrastructure and reestablished its commerce, end quote. Al-Andalus, post-Cordoba, wasn't all doom and gloom, but it was a far cry from its former greatness. Now, when Al-Qasim died and his son, Al-Mu'tadid, took the reins in the early 1040s, Seville would go on a rampage over the next two and a half decades. Seville would quickly solidify its place in Andalusian politics and economics, but its neighbors, for obvious reasons, wouldn't fare as well. Seville, Badajoz, Granada, these typhus were killing it. As an example, even Catlus acknowledges these others when he later writes, quote, Despite some successes, including the brief capture and imprisonment of the kingdom's ruler, Badajoz was simply too strong to conquer, end quote. And the other typhus, often geographically smaller, more barren with regards to resources, and with fewer leaders who possess that perfect mixture of leadership, cunning, greed, and ambition, well, these kids were looking for some help. And it's been clear in Iberia for quite a while now that religious differences only really mattered when it was politically convenient for them to matter. I mean, Muslims and Christians across official borders, that is, rarely waged religious wars on the other, and when they occurred, they certainly weren't in any effort to dominate or eradicate the other. Really, they boiled down to territory, intimidation, and resources. But not really a my-profit-can-beat-up-your-profit kind of thing. In many of the sources I used for this series on the fall of the Cordoban Caliphate and its aftermath, I came across a recurring theme in Iberia. When it came to military engagements, Christians and Muslims very often utilized each other's mercenaries. And we've seen this elsewhere on the podcast, too. This is very different from our nationalist views of today, where mercenaries, they are a thing, but they hardly make up any bulk force within a nation's military. But a thousand years ago, kings and emirs and caliphs and warlords and emperors, all of them, these people all use their wealth and influence and land holdings to lure soldiers and sailors for their causes. This was normal. Don't forget all the stories we've heard already on the show. William used mercenaries to bolster his Norman forces against King Harold Godwinson in 1066. The Hautevilles and the Drangos two Norman families out of hundreds or even thousands who rode to southern Italy, they created their entire legacies from their initial status as mercenaries. Those Patreon-supporting members who are learning about the beginnings of Poland, they just heard a story of Duke Boleslav I of Poland paying Pechenegg horsemen and Bohemian warriors to help him at the Battle of Bug River. Do I even need to mention one Harold Hardrada's rise to power? I mean, the mercenaries were everywhere. Here's the thing to keep in mind for like the next few centuries and beyond on the podcast, at least mercenaries. They were real and they were certainly a force to be reckoned with. So going forward, when we talk military matters, let's try to keep that in mind. Just assume that mercenaries will be a part of most, the vast majority, of forces that are fighting each other. And when it came to the 11th century Iberia, obviously, it was no different. 
And as Batajos, Seville, and Granada were on the march across southern and western Al-Andalus, it was others, like Toledo and Zaragoza, who saw the writing on the wall. As if the Big Three were the unstoppable Borg from the Star Trek uh, series, the smaller Taifas knew that resistance was futile. Unless. That's right. In history, like in the Lorax, there's always... And unless, unless they utilized anyone and everyone looking for a buck, Christian mercenaries looking to capitalize on their Muslim neighbors' woes went south in droves to help fend off the northern and eastern advancement of those Taifa juggernauts. See, in northern Iberia, as we introduced on the Anchor Bonus episode, episode 60, there, were a, there was a series of Christian kingdoms that, just because we haven't yet had cause to discuss them much, doesn't mean they didn't have their issues and their infighting and, and their territorial disputes and all that either. In fact, they'd also been happening for a couple centuries up there. But let's zoom in on the year 1010 for a moment. Almanzor's sons had taken the baton from their father and ran with the disastrous policies leading to, well disastrous effects, as we've talked about, which, as we know, would end up in a royal rumble of epic proportions across Al-Andalus and eventually the downfall of the entire Umayyad Caliphate. Ad nauseum, right? Well, it's important. So this was a make-or-break year for the entire peninsula, that is 1010, in hindsight, that is. And for the Muslim Iberian population and those who lived under its control, well, it amounted to a certain break rather than a make. Quote, the year 1010 was called the year of the Catalans by Islamic chroniclers, end quote, writes Richard Fletcher in his book, The Quest for El Cid. For our Spanish listeners, you're well aware that Catalonia today is the autonomous polity, probably akin to what we here in the States would call a state in modern day Spain with its gem shining brightly along its Mediterranean coast, that is, the gem of Barcelona. For the rest of us, Catalonia lies in the northeasternmost corner of Spain, right along the southern edge of the Pyrenees mountain range. So these folks from Catalonia, called Catalans, were actually from the county, again, of Barcelona in the year 1010, and their count, Ramon Borel, who we've mentioned on the podcast previously when discussing the Moor-eater, Roger of Tosni, See, Count Ramon Borel and his brother, Fletcher explains, took full advantage of the growing chaos to their south, and they marched their army deep into Zaragozan territory. Another Slavic slave, a man by the name of Wadi, property of Almanzor at one time, was ordered to step in and negotiate. Fletcher writes, quote, Wadi undertook to pay the Counts 100 dinars each day, and the wages for their troops on campaign, end quote. That deal was one of two things. One, the greatest deal in the history of deal-making. Or two, the single worst deal in the history of deal-making. I mean, Count Ramon was a boss on that day. He had to have thought, you know, so you're going to pay me 100 dinars every single day we're in your territory. But that's on top of paying for the expenses for us to, you know, be here in the first place. Like, bro, are you serious? 
You know we're here to fight you guys, right? Yeah. So no doubt uh, this had a ripple effect and helps to explain something we've already talked about. By the time Roger of Tosny rode south in exile from his homeland in Normandy and crossed the Pyrenees, he approached the Count of Barcelona, having heard their pleas for help against a surging Zaragozan army. Well, first, Tosny was able to get paid handsomely for his service. And second, well... uh, the count was already dead, and he was actually, Tosny was actually negotiating with his widowed wife. And third, Tosny was able to negotiate a marriage alliance between his Norman house and the Barcelona court, which came with not only prestige and influence, but cold hard dinars. How do you think Barcelona was able to pay for all of that, all of Tosny's services? Because in 1010, Count Ramon Borel was a boss, that's how. In Fletcher's words, quote, The influx of gold during these years had far-reaching effects upon Catalan society, end quote. (laughs) It sure did, when you think about Roger Tosny and what he was able to do for Barcelona later. And it's just one more example, actually, of how history is inescapably interconnected, which is at the heart of why I started this podcast. So Fletcher also says, quote, Inside Spain, the gold drifted northwards into Christian hands partly by means of commerce, but also, especially significant after about the year 1000, as payments for troops. End quote. So we see in the records that Christian markets opened up more and more, no doubt coming to grips with, and finally accepting, the previous eight decades of Cordoban Caliphate's prosperity it had to offer. But after the turn of the millennium, we see even more gold swell the coffers of the northern kings and nobility too. This came by way, again, of the mercenary. And it fits perfectly well into the narrative that led to Cordoba's demise. History is often defined during times like these, when men know that wealth can be made during times of strife and warfare. But this wealth must be earned at the constant penalty of what is often an intensely brutal and painful death. Yet we have millennia that proves that men answered this call. Mercenaries still exist today, so humans haven't forgotten this. Not one bit. And while these Christian mercenaries poured into Muslim ranks from northern Christian kingdoms in Iberia, as well as France itself, there was a peculiar set of events happening in one of those northern Christian kingdoms. In fact, this particular kingdom wasn't the largest, nor was it the most prosperous, but what it lacked in those areas, it benefited in an area the other kingdoms around did lack, its leader. By the time this man died in 1035, oh yes, Another monumental death that flipped the region of Europe on its head in the year 1035. This guy, King Sancho of Navarre, was known as Sancho el Mayor, or Sancho the Great. Fletcher writes, quote, By means of war and diplomacy, he built up an extensive, if short-lived, empire, end quote, which stretched essentially from beyond the Pyrenees in the east, yeah, into what is modern-day France, to the mountains separating Leon and Galicia in the west. As far as Iberian Christian kingdoms go up to the 11th century, this is pretty darn impressive. Fletcher continued, 
Quote, he established lordship over the Pyrenean counties of Aragon, Sobrabe, and Ribagorza. He extended his authority over Gascony as far as Bordeaux in the 1020s, end quote. In 1029, the once-powerful kingdom of Castile fell into his lap after an assassination. As Fletcher says, quote, never again was the suzerainty of a king of Navarre to extend so far, end quote. Okay, it's 1035 now, and stop me if you've heard this one, okay? All right, follow here. All right, so Sancho the Great, King of Navarre, and just about the rest of Christian Iberia for that matter. See, King Sancho lay dying, and he thought that the best thing to do upon his passing to ward off any possible infighting and eventual collapse was to, drumroll please divide his kingdom among his four sons. Now, where, oh, where have we heard this one? So, yeah, King Sancho died in 1035, and his sons were set to take over dad's lands. All right. So, Garcia was given dad's homeland of Navarre, which included the important city of Pamplona, today known for its famous, or is it infamous, running of the bulls tradition, though that wasn't around until the 1300s, so I'm sure we'll circle back to that tradition here in time on the podcast. Moving on, Castile went to Ferdinand I, and Aragon went to Ramiro I. And finally, Sobrabre and Ribagorsa went to young Gonzalo. I don't get it. Why unite, oftentimes quite viciously, only to break them back up into kingdoms when you die. I mean, you just you just spent all those years modeling for your sons how to conquer and maintain a large kingdom only to, what, break up the whole thing and say, here, kiddos, you'll never be as good as the old man, so have some fun knowing you'll always be in my shadow. Yeah, so the boys took their kingdoms, of course, and, and they went their separate ways, but this wouldn't last long. <laughs> Not long at all, actually. In the meantime, though, those typhus to the south were still swirling in the undertow of the collapse of Cordoba. The year is now 1038, and Christian mercenaries were, once again, called upon to head south to make a quick dinar or two. Ishmael ibn di Nun, Toledo's de facto ruler, was, according to Brian Catlos in his book Kingdoms of Faith, quote, rallying forces to march on Muslim Zaragoza, where a coup within the ruling family had led to the assassination of his kinsman, King Mundir II al-Tujibi, and the seizure of the throne by the victim's cousin, Abid Allah. Quote. But instead of troops, Ferdinand I, the young Count of Castile, sent a message that reflected the shifting balance of power in the peninsula. The letter read, We demand our land, which a long time ago you conquered, and which you have inhabited for as long as had been ordained by God. Now he has given us victory over you on account of your wickedness. Depart to your own shores of North Africa and give our land up to us, for there is no good in your living with us any longer, nor will we turn away from you until God has judged between you and us, end quote. Catlos fo follows this powerful letter between a Muslim Taifa ruler and a Christian king in the north, 
as not only, quote, a declaration of war, but also, quote, an early expression of what would eventually become known as La Reconquista, or the Reconquest, an ideological pogrom supported by the monarchy of Castile and Leon and by the papacy, which envisioned the political history of the peninsula as a struggle between Christianity and Islam, endowed it with a moral legitimacy and sense of historical inevitability. But I'm going to leave us on this note, and it pretty much goes against anything I'd ever heard previously about the Reconquista in Iberia. Catlos makes a bold statement when he says of the Reconquista, quote, What it was not, and what it would never be, was a call to expel the Muslim population from Spain. End quote. I'm always up for having my preconceptions challenged, and I sincerely hope you do too. So on the next episode, we'll continue our story of how the Christians turned the tables and pushed back against the Muslim powerhouses to their south, fractured though they were at the time, hovering around the 1030s, 1040s, and 1050s. 